This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, bringing you another very exciting episode. Uh, and today we have Nancy Spencer from the University of Alberta in the great country to the north of us in Canada, getting international today. Uh, and she is here to talk about adaptive physical activity, a little bit about disability models, language that we use when we talk about disability. So we're going to get conceptual up in here today. So Nancy, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to just start and I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the field of APA. Um, well, it's sometimes hard for me to shorten the story, but um, when I went to university, I actually wanted to be a speech pathologist and my grades were not high enough to get into the program. Um, but I had always really enjoyed sport and physical activity, and those were positive settings for me. So I ended up moving over to the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. And I did sort of an introductory year, but also took a number of uh, adaptive physical activity courses in that process. And, and I think I just fell in love with this idea of um, ways in which we could make the world more accessible. And, and starting to question some of my own assumptions that I held around disability. And because I had always experienced a lot of inclusion in sport myself, I don't know, I was as attuned to the number of times that people don't experience that or don't have good experiences. And I guess that led me uh, to develop more curiosity. And I did a master's degree in the same faculty. And then I did my PhD there as well. And ultimately, now here I am um, on your podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, this all led to uh, this event, this culminating event in your career. Yeah, this is like the <laughs> highlight of my career. Yeah. So, so uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, and I would say, uh, you know, I have a very different mind, but like, you know, I went through and I don't know if I started really questioning that stuff. I mean, I did to a degree, but it really wasn't until my PhD that I really kind of opened my eyes to that stuff a little bit, which is an odd thing, maybe. So right, we're going to talk about disability and we're going to talk about different perceptions and attitudes towards people with disabilities, different models. Uh, and, and I should have said this at the beginning, but the reason I contacted you is I read your chapter, I think with, is it Daniel, Dr. Daniel Pierce? Is that right? Yeah, and um, Dr. Lindsay Eales. Yeah, yeah. and in um, the handbook of adaptive physical uh, education research with, from Hegel and Hodge and Shapiro. Um, and, and I found it to be really riveting and the amount of, I, you know, just thoughts that you put out there, I found it to be really, really helpful. And I, I've read a lot of your work and I really, really appreciate it. And I always find it to be, it, it pushes my understanding of what disability is and, and, um, and, and my biases. So I, I, I wanted you to, to be on the podcast because I really, really admire your, your, your writing. So, um, so with that though. I, I want to hear what, from your perspective, what is a disability? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I knew you'd be asking a question like that one, and so I've been given some thought to it. And it, it's interesting because I don't think about it as a disability. 
So I guess that's the first thing. So the, so the question doesn't really come to me in a way that I think I can even answer it. I, I would say more like what is disability? Because I don't think disability is a thing. Um, I, I see it as a construct and a concept. So I think it's disability is something that is socially constructed that happens outside of a person, um, but it can result in marginalization and oppression of a person. So, so I would, I guess, describe disability or that concept in a similar way to how social model theorists would, although I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm fully in that camp, but that the disability is something that is produced and created outside of an individual um, that it results in marginalization, oppression, lack of access to education, um, opportunity, uh, attitudes that are negative toward an individual. So, so I think quite often when people think about a disability, I'm thinking you're actually talking about impairment and, and bodies that, are, that don't fit our normative ways of thinking. Uh, so disability for me is a social construction that that society society's actually created that idea of disability and then limited life chances for people mm. uh, who are experiencing it. Well, and and with that, uh, what would you say then about people like I know of uh, of a few groups that in particular, like the the visual impairment and autistic uh, groups that are really proud um, you know, of, of their disability and their culture. How does that kind of play into that, uh, that thought? Yeah, so um, I mean, I guess I, sh I should back up a little bit and I, cause I think it's really important to, to say that I don't experience disability. Yeah. Um, I don't identify as disabled. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's also important to recognize that I am a white cisgendered woman settler um, also, because I think my privilege and my positionality is really important to note in these conversations. So Absolutely. I'm not from within a disability community. So the things that, that I'm talking about here are not my own firsthand expertise and, and disability experiences. Um, but when you talk about different communities of people, I immediately start thinking about culture, identity first and experiential models. And and certainly when we look at autism, we often see that term used as first person first language, so people with autism. But um, autism is also understood as a valued characteristic of a person, a way in which they see themselves. And so people would say, I am autistic or I am unautistic. And, and that reflects a different kind of meaning. It's, it's a self-proclaimed identity by autistic activists, um, it's you know referring to this idea of neurodivergence that can be you know a neutral to positive understanding versus seen as a diagnosis through a medical lens as something that needs to be fixed and treated so at the end of the day where i land in terms of what language i think we should use i think we should use language that is respectful that is chosen by the communities of people for whom it is meant to describe so I don't get to choose how you should see yourself or what you should be called. You get to decide that. And so um, I'm very supportive of the identity first approach to it because I think that people should be able to well represent who they are, how they wish to be represented. Uh, yeah, I think 
that was a very nice and concise way to, to explain all that because that was a lot of concepts kind of uh, put in there and you did a great job. No, it was awesome. Um, I'm going to go back and because there's a bunch of stuff in there that I kind of want to tease out in a little bit. Let's go back to that kind of first question I was talking about, what is disability and such, and, and, and the different attitudes and perceptions because I think that, um, you know, and likely even our perceptions differ in some ways toward or attitudes differ towards what this concept is in some ways. So, so you know, why are there so many different, because when I read the things about even like your chapter, I almost get overwhelmed with all of the concepts out there, the, the embodiment um, model and then the medical model and the social models. And then every single one of those models has models within them. Um, and so, you know, why, and, and obviously all those things then push into attitudes and perceptions. How do, how do, like, why is there so many different ones and how do we navigate those to kind of choose our own or attitudes and perceptions toward disability? Well, I think something that's been really helpful for me in understanding this, because of course I face that exact same challenge of feeling a bit overwhelmed um, by all the possibilities and, and then having like a deep commitment to being accountable to the words that I use um, and respectful to the people I, I use them with. And, and so a couple of things that I found have really been useful um, in navigating some of this has been one, the concept of story, which I think we used in the chapter that you're referring to and, and asking like, what's the story behind these different models and behind these different languages and really seeing it as a story as opposed to trying to like, you know, I guess, track all the bullet points that make up a particular way of writing or thinking about something. So I think story can be a really useful concept in this. And then I think models, we can also think about them as tools. So mm. they can help us to do stuff. And so if we think about that concept of story in terms of understanding where things come from and what they mean and tools that, okay, now we're gonna use this story and the tools that come out of that story to be able to accomplish something. Um, we can also use them, we can use them for good and we can use them for not good. Um, but I think those two things really help uh, with understanding uh, disability language and models, because you're right, there are so many of them. Um, and they, they come out of different ways of uh, like a historical approach to understanding what disability is and what it means. And, and you know, historically, we kind of start off with a medical model, which really views disability as something that is negative, something that needs to be fixed, uh, something that resides in a person where we equate people to a diagnosis. Um, and it's often associated with a, a tragedy model as mm. well. And that sort of was our starting point for disability is this, this hugely negative one that had um, life chance repercussions for people. And, and then people develop forms of resistance against that. And then we start to develop new models and different models. And, and then that's how come those stories start to grow and change. So we start off with this one story and all it does is position um, disability sort of in dichotomous terms um, with huge power relations. And I, I would argue that we still have a lot of dichotomy and, and, we, and the power piece to that is ever present, but, but we start off with a comparative to the average and the norm and deviation from that is negative when it's around this notion of disability. So, that's our starting point story. And then people start to recognize the inequities of that, the, the oppression that comes with that. 
uh, the harms that come with that. And then people start to write new stories. And then we get new models and new kinds of language. So let's let's talk about some of those different models. Um, we, we've kind of, I think you somewhat discussed the medical model being that that tragic one. This one that I think that a lot of us are kind of socialized into, even as you know, within our field oftentimes. Um, but like, can we talk about some of the, the broad concepts of those and can you define some of them? Sure. So um, I'll just do a little bit more medical model um, stuff as well, because I've been asked, well, geez, is the medical model all bad? Um, you know, because because, of course, all those descriptors I provided are pretty negative ones. Um, but, you know, I have a colleague who, who said, like, geez, if I have a heart condition, I want a doctor to fix it. Um, so, so I think we also need to recognize like that medical understandings of diagnoses can be really helpful to people in terms of uh, strategies that might support a better life. Should they want strategies? Should they see that as a better life? Um, you know, reduction of pain or fatigue and other things that can come with impairment. So um, the medical model, its history is quite devastating. Um, but, it, it, you know, we want to have doctors <laughs> that can offer treatment and, and provide relief from pain um, as well. So, but, but that's, that's very different than thinking or defaulting to the idea that somebody's life is tragic and terrible. It, real quick on that thought, too. It, to me, it seems, and I've had that exact same thought, and I, and I, I appreciate you kind of saying that because um, of like that there is a place for it, but it, I think that especially in the education setting, it's really inappropriate 99.9% of the time. Um, well, yeah, and sorry, I cut you off. No, you're okay. Um, well, and I, I think like when we get into the field of APA and APE, um, what becomes problematic is the idea that, that let's say we're talking about children in particular, that they're not okay as they are, that they are not valued humans. Um, in the forms in which they come into the world and how they respond to the world. Like, I mean, the world they did not choose. Um, and, and often a world that's not constructed for them in, in any way, shape, or form. And, and so I think in education, we often think, well, how do we reduce behaviors? How do we change this? How, and in APE, how do we get somebody to jump further, farther, faster, higher, more like the norm? And, but why is that so important? <laughs> would be a question I'd ask, like an underlying assumption, why does it matter so much? Um, so, so yeah, so I think that that's a really challenging um, thing for APA in particular, because I, I believe in this idea, we want to make things accessible and we want to adapt and modify, but do people want things adapted and modified for them in the first place? And why do we privilege a certain way of doing something in the first place? So why are we adapting and modifying a particular thing that in and of itself maybe wasn't all that awesome? Or and, and I, there are just a lot of assumptions about what's the privileged space and yeah. activities that I, tie into this idea of models and that somebody's not okay in the way they come. I want to hear more about some different models than just the medical model, but I will say that I, I do think about sometimes our field about a, a, APA because we do have things like biomechanics and exercise science that that and then and we do have things that are how do I improve you know and, and then we're almost a field that has feet you know that that benefit from that medical model in some ways but then we have so much also with the those different perspectives that that look at disabilities more than just 
um, how do I improve the outcomes of it too? So I find us to be almost, a, and maybe we aren't that unique, but I, I do perceive us sometimes as being a unique field that that needs that there's such a need for us, almost all of us, to kind of understand these different models and play with them. Yeah. Well, and and like I feel like I'm getting myself into a bit of a hot seat here, but but um, I think we really need to welcome some big shakeups in yeah. terms of how how we think about things and that's not to devalue work that people have previously done but but i certainly know that things i wrote 10 years ago i would write them differently now and what i thought 10 years ago i think differently now and hopefully like we're open to that kind of progress in challenging the assumptions that even underlie our field um yeah but but again i know you're trying to direct me toward let's talk about some models um but but yeah so i think the one that that naturally is seen as opposing a medical model would be like the social model, which uh, emerged in the 1970s and comes out of the UK. And what it really highlights is this notion that people aren't disabled because they have differences in their bodies, but rather because of the barriers that society creates. And, and this, you know, I guess resonates well with the initial question about like what is a disability and immediately I start talking about a social role in creating disability. So that's that's very much a part of uh, a social model. Um, other key pieces to social models are around activism um, and that that societies actively exclude, marginalize and discriminate against people. Um, and that's what causes disablement. So so the literal, and I found this a useful way to keep my model straight in my head, is that a social model puts forward the, the idea that, you know, it's disabled person, and that does not sound good to a lot of ears, uh, particularly people who subscribe to a person first model, but that that term disabled person, to think about it as disabled by society. Like, and, and that's the interpretation. It's not suggesting that a person doesn't work or their body is bad or it doesn't function or it needs to be improved or it's broken, but rather that that person is disabled by society. Um, so yeah, it reflects back the notion of all kinds of barriers that people face um, because of a biological difference that's viewed as unacceptable. Um, and uh, the other thing, I guess, it, a critique of the social model is that it negates what actually occurs in the body. And um, within the social model, the term impairment is what is used to refer to those bodily differences. And so that also can be relevant and different writers give it more or less space. But the notion of impairment is that somebody experiences some non-normative biological type of function or structure but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Um, so there is a way to still describe that within a social model, but the focus is very much on social barriers. Mm. And, and, and I, I'm really interested, and those are the two that I kind of come to the, like, to the scene with having a good foundation, I think, or, or some foundation. Um, and then there's all these other models that kind of then kind of like get my mind really rolling. Like, one I've been reading about the most lately, and it's still like, I, you know, I'm just reading it on paper. I need to have conversations about to really understand. Can you talk a little bit about some of those other models that are maybe a little less known in our field? For sure. Well, um, like I'm going to say yes, but wait a second. 
Um, because I think the other model that that's like sort of the other big model, we might sort of think of a, there being a big three currently would be the disability rights model. So I mentioned the person first model. And, and I think that's critical to mention because it, it's sort of like the primary approach in North America around disability. And, and it evolved out of this idea that people who had a disability, so it's again, a different conceptualization of disability in this model, should have their rights protected um, and should have access to education and things like that. And the language evolved in order to be very like deliberately respectful and demonstrate um, support for inclusion and disability rights and to prioritize people first mm -hmm. uh, and that impairment or the disability is just considered to be one of many other attributes that a person has. And so that it's, it's literally understood in the way the language is spoken. So if you say person with a disability, the desire to prioritize the person comes first, but an underlying message there too is though that the disability also belongs to the person. Um, so while there's an emphasis on rights, the literal interpretation of that is that the person has the disability. So it's still housed within the person. Um, but disability again is, is understood as this you know, bodily difference, uh, a biological one, but that it's still within the person. So it's, it's a model that gets used very commonly in North America as well as in Australia. It's sort of viewed as a default. Like if you don't know what to say, go with person first. And um, that's what I learned. And I used to think my ears were burning when I would hear social model language because I didn't really understand the story. Um, but once you start to understand the stories, then you start to think differently and challenge some of your assumptions. So, so I just think it's important to, to uh, mention that model early on. And real quick on that model, I think we're, I mean, in academia, we're almost forced to uh, use that language, at least as a default, unless you want to, uh, like, so when we write jur uh, journal articles, most journal articles that are North American have in there uh, or they ascribe to APA, which APA says use person first language, like that's what their default is. Uh, and so unless you want to spend half a, you know, half a page explaining why you're not using this, this term, um, you know, it's almost, it's forced upon us a little bit uh, in academia, a little bit to use that term, which I find, yeah. you know, and, and if I'm not writing about disability, maybe I'm writing about it, maybe more from an exercise physiology standpoint or something, and that's okay. But then I it, like to spend half a page just explaining why I'm using this term, I find sometimes to be a little, I don't know, um, like it's a little limiting um, that yeah. they're that they're expecting us to always use this terminology. Yeah, well, and, and I, I mean, I definitely know what you're getting after. And, and so when I first became interested in, in writing about disability language, it, it was partly feeling like, yeah, we were excluding a lot of important perspectives by making people write this way um, that that's maybe inconsistent with the story that they're trying to tell and the assumptions that they hold around disability and that there's a need to both question and create greater space for those stories. But but I, you know, I also recognize that, well, gosh, do you have to justify it in half a page all the time? And and so one of the, the really neat moments, I guess, in my career, besides this one, obviously, being on your podcast, which is super cool, um, is like, so the chapter that you referred to, um, it, it, it is an evolution of a paper that I, you know, 
um, was really lucky to co-author with Dr. Piers and Eels as well, um, that was published in APAC that actually questioned the language policy in that journal. And, and what it eventually led to was a change in policy. So, so we were invited to help to rewrite the policy to make it more inclusive, which this should be a no-brainer that we're trying to be more inclusive in our field, but we're not always. Um, but like to be more inclusive of other theoretical perspectives and understandings and research, right? Because otherwise we, we lose a lot of richness um if we keep ourselves to one way of thinking about things or force people to write in a way that that's inconsistent um or maybe um inc not just inconsistent but maybe goes against their values yeah and uh, yeah. so i was going to say a strategy that that i started to use when i write with write in language that doesn't align with the journal is i actually footnote it um and, uh, and I just say the language used in this paper is consistent with this type of model. And, and I'll like cite an article where they can read about the model and any language that deviates from that represents like direct quotes from the literature, et cetera. So, so I've tried to find a way to navigate that and to avoid the whole half page thing. Uh, I think it can be valuable so people understand it, but, but it's also unfair <laughs> that we would privilege one way over another way. Um, and when both have the underlying intention and history to be respectful. Yeah. I don't think every paper, depending on what it's about, needs to go into a full spiel about what disability model that they're, they're from. But, you know, exactly because a lot of other people don't have to because they're using the one that's ascribed to so often. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, the, interesting stuff and and yeah I, I, uh, congratulations on getting APAC to kind of change that and look at other um, things so real quick though if we could hit on some of those other because I, I find the embodiment model is the one that I've been like looking at the most and being like really really thinking about but I don't know if there's some other models that you've been looking at um, that, that you kind of think about as well yeah, well, I mean, certainly there is like uh, a cultural linguistic model that is associated with um, deaf communities uh, who would identify as capital D deaf. And now I'm aware that there are some shifts happening there. And again, I'm not a member of that community, so it feels like I'm speaking a bit out of turn. Um, but, but in terms of how I've come to understand the cultural model of deaf communities, it's the idea that um, using that term deaf person with a capital D really signifies um, membership in a cultural linguistic minority um, that has rich traditions, valued languages, and different kinds of worldviews. So it, it is not about disability and it is not about impairment. Um, it is very much about valuing rich traditions within a community of people who value themselves and value their languages um, and their traditions and how they come to the world. So, so in some ways, it feels like an interesting thing to talk about that model within a conversation about disability models mm -hmm. because it, it's very much about culture um, versus about disability. Yeah. Um, other, other models um, that might be, I guess, framed within sort of a similar grouping of culture, identity first, and experience uh, would be when people reclaim terminology that's been previously used against them. And we write a bit about this in our paper as well. Um, but the terms like MAD and CRIP are, are terminologies now used by communities of people who identify in that way. But, but I would have been taught 
not to use those terms. I would still not use those terms because I, I'm not reclaiming them. They aren't my terminology. So when I speak about them, I just make sure that, that I, I, I try to tell the story in line with the language. Um, and so if I'm writing about those terms, then typically I'm writing with somebody um, who, who self-identifies in that way. So we do have various different terminology that would fit into sort of a reclaimed identity first um, approach. And then there's also the experiential model. And this is what I found as it's not a solution, but where I'm currently most comfortable and aligns with how I understand the story of disability as something that a person experiences and that it recognizes that all people have different experiences of it. And so I would, it looks person first, but I, I would very much say a person who experiences disability rather than a person with disability or a disabled person. Um, when you experience disability, I think it recognizes that it happens in the world around you, but that it's happening also to you. So you're experiencing the marginalization, the discrimination. Uh, I also, and it's not so much that it's, I use it as a lighter term, um, but I use it as a term that is respectful of diversity and also opens the door for people to share how they see themselves and how they experience their own lives because people are experts in their own lives. And as researchers, there's such a significant power uh, dynamic and, and, and we are placed in a, we are in a position to write about people. And I think it's really critical that we represent people how they wish to be represented. And so I find that's a good approach until I actually know how people want to be represented. Because if someone said, well, you know, person first language is, is most respectful to me, then that's what I use. If, if someone um, says social model language, then that's what I'll use to describe them. But I've gotten in, away from having tables of descriptions of diagnoses. Um, because I think that people should be able to identify in the ways that they choose. And, and if I'm including that kind of information, then I will say participants self-identified as, and that's also how I ask my questions to people. How do you see yourself? Are you comfortable sharing? Um, you know, do you experience disability? Rather than making assumptions of like, what's your disability? <laughs> you know, those are very different kinds of questions. Um, so yeah, so those are, I guess, a few of the models and then where I've landed in my own use. So going on that language thing, because I, I know that was something that we wanted to talk about. And we kind of have talked about why and, and somebody might use person first versus disability first or the different and um, person experiencing disability uh, language. Now, if I'm a practitioner, um, how do you, how would you, who maybe is encountering, you know, um, 40 individuals a day or something like that, um, how would you uh, try to uh, give them strategies to use the correct language um, that a person desires? Yeah, yeah, we, we, and again, we talked about this a little bit in the chapter, and I found this really hard myself, um, but I, I think we can ask people, and, yeah. and I know what you're saying, like 40 kids, I'm like, yeah, but those kids like are Scott and Nancy, like really that's who those kids are and then and and that doesn't devalue an identity first model or person first model but that's who those kids are and then you're going to learn things about those kids 
and what they like and what they don't like. And some of that's going to be tied to disability related things and not. Um, but I, but I think, you know, how do you see yourself? I, we have to make time to actually ask questions, to give thought to the kind of language that we use. And, and I, and I, and again, I, I'm not a teacher, so it's also maybe unfair for me to put this on teachers, but, but every child you have a relationship with and, yeah. and in order for, and I guess this touches on this idea of a relational model, but, but disability also comes about through the kind of relationship that we have with people. And, and often people who have various impairment diagnoses um, are, are not in positions of power to make decisions for themselves or over their own bodies. So, so the more that we open up opportunities for conversation about who you are, how you see yourself, um, how do you self-describe, how, how, what's most comfortable when I need to talk about these things, because we also have, think because we're an APA and APE, the disability is all, always relevant. I think it's always relevant when someone is marginalized because of it, but it's not always relevant in every context that we're in, but for some reason we make it that way. So I even think about this when I'm interpreting data and, and I'm looking to publish it in, in our field. I'm like thinking, okay, well, they're not talking about disability at all here. So is that not, re no, it's absolutely relevant that that it doesn't have to be the central feature all the time and yep. so i think that we we can kind of fall into a bit of a, a trap there of thinking because i work in this field everything is related to that there's definitely an intersectionality um, that we need to be much more conscious to that i think is is something lacking in our field actually is more intersectional kinds of work um, but to question whether or not like disability is the primary part of every story is also important. Absolutely. Um, now back to that pra practitioner idea though, I, you know, I find that it's not, usually they are gonna talk to Sally and say Sally, uh, but when they refer to them outside of it, which is also like to me, big time of what we're pushing attitudes is how we refer to kids with disabilities. Um, my, the school I worked at when I was a teacher, I have brought up the story a few times here, but like, we um we had a term and we would call all the kids with disabilities they were in a segregated part of the school to call them full high and which was like it was physical health other impairments and on like the principal would make announcements all the full high kids come get your pictures taken right now right and what we started seeing uh quite often is um we would see like kids in the hallway and be like you're a full high which is basically was another term for it. It was a slur that was established in my school. Like, and only kids in my school would understand that slur, but it became a slur. Um, or yeah, and so um, I found that the, the terminology that we use to describe the kids, uh, our classes or groups of kids became a really big deal. So on that same note, so when we're talking about a practitioner and a group of kids, how do we refer, what, what strategies do we give them to refer to them as a as a group yeah so so it's interesting because like first of all does it matter to refer them as a group yeah and, and what you're describing is a situation where like we we do want to engage a community or a group of people um but also recognizing that we do terrible things to language because um you know a, a term that might have just been used out of convenience 
um, now gets turned into something that's deeply dis disrespectful. Um, and as you described the slur, but I, I guess, you know, um, language is really important because it helps us to communicate, but it, it communicates our attitudes, our positive and negative beliefs about people and things. And I think we need to be aware when, when those things shift and have negative impacts. And so, for example, in your school, there's no way practitioners did not realize that that term was becoming used in those kinds of ways. And, and there has to be other ways and creative ways to think about describing groups of people that don't have to be derogatory. And I think this is making, and I don't exactly know how this would work with children, but it makes me think about those terms of resistance. Um, there is an integrated dance group that was started up by Dr. Dr. Ailes, so one of my co-authors, and it's called Cripsy. And, and it's integrated, and so it has people who would experience disability, their allies, and, and there's a beautiful description of actually what that integrated group, dance group means. But that term Cripsy is, is sort of a reclaimed term, but then it, and it's, twist, it's put, got a twist on it. And so it become, became a valued term. So I guess I would be invested in a process that explores the idea of how do we come up within our community with a valued term in terms of how we would like to be understood and described, um, knowing full well um, that you know, there's this euphemistic kind of thing that occurs that you know we start off with a term and then we need to change it. And that these, I mean, like I said, 10 years ago, I, I wrote things I wouldn't write today. Um, and so, so I think going within a community of kids, like, who are we, what do we, what do we want to be, what do, like, how do we want to describe ourselves, because why shouldn't it be up to them? I mean, everybody else can figure it out and get on board. And, 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 and why does it have to just be that group of kids who has like, a, like a, a descriptor, right? Like, saying this idea of like, well, the segregated classrooms coming, all the, so like we impose otherness the minute we start doing that kind of thing. So I guess practitioners need to question, do we need these identifying terms? Are they useful to us? Do they help us communicate? Yeah, maybe we need to apply some labels so that we can achieve some end goals so that we know what we're talking about, but there are better ways to do that. And children have much bigger voices then we make space to hear, and particularly children who experience disability. So I'd be interested in a consultative process with the children, I guess. No, I think that's awesome. And in, like, I mean, to me, a lot of this stuff is not nefarious, rather it's uh, incompetence and laziness, because I think the way, even my story, I think the way it started is that that was the label that was given to the disability. And on the report cards, it would say, ho high, and then it would say like the classroom. And so like, they just, is P-O-H-I and then whatever classroom they're in on a report card. So people started using it out of like a very like convenience, right? So I, to me, and, and you know, you talked about all these models and I think to, to me, these models help us by kind of making us think about these things a little bit versus because I think that we as humans a lot of times want to be efficient or we want to kind of get things done and we want to go on to the next task or whatever but it makes us challenge those things and think about it a little bit more um, rather than just to kind of whatever, brush those things under the rug. Cause I think that's what a lot of us do because it's 
the things that we're talking about are, are kind of difficult, um, or especially to do it at a large, especially with what's already happening in society with disability. These things are not, you know, easy to do. So with this, um, I, I think though, I mean, I think I had this like last question of like, this is a contested area and should we debate it and come to a consensus? But I, you know, I think that, you know, the things that my last question, I feel like you've already kind of answered that it's these, there's different perspectives and we have to kind of choose them and, and um, you know, and come to an understanding and kind of challenge our own biases. But like, so I guess as the last question though, how do you, how does someone navigate identifying the model that best describes to them um, or, 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 or a situation? Well, I mean, I, we're not always in positions to learn about these kinds of things, right? And so, and it becomes a lot of labor. Um, and I don't mean for the practitioners and the teachers and the researchers, it becomes a lot of labor for the person experiencing disability. And, and I feel like, geez, like, like they're doing labor every day because literally doors are closed. And um, so I think there's a willingness and there's an openness uh, that comes with this, uh, a desire to learn, certainly in I mean, I work at a university, so I think about the importance of this being part of every undergraduate student's education, mm. um, that they're exposed to these different models and ways of thinking, and that we that we teach in a critical way um, that also allows students to see their place in the world, to question what they value and the implications of that for who they value, because the practitioners have been educated. And so education is one of our opportunities um, to really instill this idea of reflexivity and reflection uh, and to never make the mistake of thinking we, we got it. Like we got there because things are going to change. Um, and, and yeah, and that's very clear. They don't stay the same. And if you look at these different stories, they come about because one story doesn't meet the need or is disrespectful or is harmful or it doesn't really capture the understanding that people have. So attitudes and ideas shift and change. Um, but like, geez, I mean, it's so difficult because we have so many, uh, I don't even know what to call them, but devastating social things that that are happening in our world that have been going on for years and years. And, and you step back and look at them and, and I'm invested in disability, but, but this happens across all different forms of intersectionality that the people are treated poorly, um, that they're discriminated against and uh, marginalized and that continues to happen. And so we can't, oh, this is an Einstein quote. It's something like, you know, we can't change the world with the same kind of thinking we use to create it. And um, I don't know if I got that <laughs> directly, but it's super yeah, perfect. Um, but but I like that idea is that we have to continually change and think differently and question our assumptions and and be really open to that. Um, there's this there's this idea of calling people out, and then there's the notion of calling people in. When mm. you call people out, the door closes, and people are defensive or aggressive. When you call them in, you welcome them to question, to think about another way of doing something, to be vulnerable. Um, and as you described, we're in a world where we want to do things faster, better, whatever. 
maybe we really need to start challenging some of our underlying values about what is really important. There's no better time to do that than during a pandemic, it seems to me, um, where we are really up against like what, what things matter the most here. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The deep thoughts, and I agree with 100%, especially, you know, like me becoming a father recently and during a pandemic, it was like kind of instantly too, like, oh, I, I didn't even realize this is kind of a marginalized group of being a parent, especially during like COVID because like, you know, your workspace are just kind of like figure it out, even though it's like this crazy thing. And uh, yeah, we're constantly, I, man, you had so many good, good things in that uh, with the Einstein quote too. It is, we have to find different ways to kind of view things and challenging our, our values right now, I think is so important. I think to me, a lot of the pandemic's been changing our expectations mm -hmm. and maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing because maybe i may how much do i really need this item or this this you know career thing or whatever it might be like how much is that necessary at least and that's for me you know but yeah we're changing our, our some of those expectations and values that are so efficiency economy kind of driven um when we yeah i don't know well, and I, I think a big part of this change, well, something that's integral to change is um, recognizing the voices that are systematically excluded from the conversations. Mm -hmm. so, so I can sit in my comfy living room with my comfy privileged life that I had that I did not earn that happened because I look a certain way and I was born a certain place and these kinds of things, but, but recognizing that there are communities of people who are systematically excluded from all of these conversations, including those people experiencing disability. And so change doesn't happen because, you know, I sit here and I think harder and I reflect more. Um, yeah. It happens because we do things differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love it. Thank you, Nancy, so much for coming on and talking about um, all these, these big thoughts and, and challenging Hopefully, yeah, we get some people to think about what they, they're doing. And I don't know. Yeah, it's a yeah, change out there. Yeah, and I don't think there is a recipe. Um, you know, so at the end of these kinds of talks, I'm like, oh, that's a whole lot of idea. Um, <laughs> now what? Um, but, but I mean, conversations are definitely part of it, for sure. And I'm really appreciative uh, to have this experience with you. And it was like super fun for my first podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you.